writing her off as just the, the ditzy secretary character. It's a really two-dimensional view of, of a really three-dimensional character. My guess is that they're tasting a Beaujolais, and the banana actually comes from a chemical compound called isoamyl acetate. I think Raimi being here is kind of an in-joke. Uh, a Hollywood horror film in general. Part of, I think, being a fan of the show is being comfortable with that level of uncertainty. Fellow spirits, you've gambled back to Back to the Double R. We greet you with a happy good day. And here we are for another puzzle in this episode of Twin Peaks. This week, season two, episode 19, Variations on Relations. I'm Damon, and it feels like someone's taken a crowbar to my heart. I'm Jonathan, and I'll do anything that body and mind can stand. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jennifer, and sometimes the urge to do bad is nearly overpowering. I'm Colin, and this could take years. This week on Twin Peaks, four hungry lawmen made an oopsie as they neglected to have anyone guard Owl Cave and let Wyndham Earl traipse on in. Earl, for his part, is still monologuing, though this time with a heavy metal youth and a crossbow. Catherine and Pete Martell are perplexed over a puzzle box. Ben Horn, in his struggle to be good, acknowledges his nearly overwhelming urges to be bad. Dick Tremaine has found out the answer to the question, do you know what happens to nosy fellers? As he hosts another ill-fated soiree at the Great Northern in the service of the Pine Weasel. Shelley, Nadine, Lana Milford, and Donna each have their own reasons for entering the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. Donna, in particular, wants to use the winnings as a means of escape, as the disdain for her parents' lack of transparency has grown so large that not even the world's biggest bowl of peas can contain it. Oh, and for some gross reason, David Lynch makes out with Machen Amick. Uh, this episode originally aired on the ABC network on April 11th, 1991, written by Mark Frost, who uh, returns after, I think, quite a bit of a, you know absence to the writing credits of the show, also written by Harley Payton. And this episode was directed by Jonathan Sanger. Sanger has a Lynch connection in that he was the producer of the quite wonderful film, The Elephant Man, which I just recently watched for the first time about a week and a half ago. Uh, um, like, I kind of wish Lynch, even though he's kind of sort of semi-retired from filmmaking at this point, would go back to like more of the straight, like historical fiction or, you know, biographical, like true life films, because it's really, really fantastic. Great Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt performances in there. Uh, uh, really, really solid. Um, and did, like a bit of trivia in regards to the Elephant Man, Jonathan Sanger is the credited producer, but he is not the only producer on the film. Do you guys have any idea who else uh, did, you know, the, or who else produced the Elephant Man? It was Mel Brooks. Oh, that's uh, right. And 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 he specifically asked that his name not be on the credits for the movie because they didn't want people to think it was like a comedy or something. Right, he thought it like, would be too off-brand for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not like off-brand, but I think he didn't want, like, you know, kind of given, I think, maybe the seriousness of the subject matter, he didn't want people, like, expecting something farcical. His wife is also in the movie, Anne Bancroft. She's equally fabulous in it. And I don't know if I've ever seen her in a movie where she wasn't Mrs. Robinson. So that was a, you know, a treat to see that movie highly, highly recommended. And um, Lynch does put some twists in there that I think kind of makes sense, you know, in sort of his uh, filmography. So if you haven't checked out the elephant man, 
I highly, highly, I recommend it. And, you know, that's where you're getting the uh, director of this episode, which, you know, before we get going, I got to say it was not one of my favorite episodes of Twin Peaks. I definitely think it's a bottom five episode. Um, I think this is a hamster wheel episode. I don't think the storyline really advances a whole lot here in any way that, you know, we didn't see in the previous episode and certainly that we're not going to see in like next week's episode. And this one was one of the few that I felt was just like really padded out there. I don't know if, you know, anyone else feels that way, but that was sort of my take on some of my distaste for this episode. I mean, I didn't dislike this episode. I thought there was some pretty amazing writing and and some of that we'll get into later. There are some, you know, pretty amazing lengthy monologues from Wyndham Earl and, um, and I think there are some thematic connections throughout the episode that I found alluring. So I, I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's terrible, but it, I agree that it felt a little slow. Uh, if, it seems like a lot of this episode is just kind of doing the work of setting up the final confrontations of the season that you know we'll see over the next few episodes. And maybe that was necessary, but, but I kind of agree that we don't see things move forward too much in this episode, and it's a little slow. I think that this episode has more to recommend it than uh, maybe any of my co-hosts feel it does, and uh, I'll be making my case later. All right, folks, uh, I am going to talk about some stuff I didn't like and something that I really love, right? So we're going to talk about um, what I called for my theme of the episode, which is bad chemistry. And we're also going to talk about um, Lucy, played by Kimmy Robinson, who is absolutely fantastic. So to kind of tie the two together, I'm going to, you know, talk about we've seen Twin Peaks, you know, kind of borrow liberally from all kinds of other genres like film noir, Western, police procedural, supernatural horror. But in variations on relations, I think, um, you know, it highlights romance and kind of of all the genre shows or, you know, things that Twin Peaks steal from, I think it's the least successful when it, you know, focuses on romance. You know, I, there's some romances that work like really, really well, like Big Ed and Norma, who are absent from this episode. Uh, uh, you know, I think that's like, you know, one of the key ones. And um, I think Andy and Lucy are also really good. And we're going to talk a little bit more about them later. But, um, you know, I think that like, you know, there's just a lot of like sort of like unsuccessful and problematic relationships that are highlighted. Um, it, you know, for me, like I said last week, Cooper and Annie doesn't work. They give them like a whole scene on a boat where I'm just like, yeah, there's, there's no chemistry between either Kama Glocklin or uh, Heather Graham. Um, there's like the really unfortunate scene where, you know, David Lynch is like literally making out with Machen Amick. And I'm just like, this guy is like the director of the show and he's almost 25 years older than her. And like, I like it left a really bad taste in my mouth, even though the scene is presented as wholesome. And when I looked up, you know, like, how does Machen Amick or David Lynch feel about it? They all have really happy memories. So that's just this podcaster's opinion, I suppose. Um, but I also think that like some of the relationships are really just kind of like sexless and sort of anodyne, like there isn't a lot of juice to any of that stuff. So before we get into Lucy, you know, do any of the three of you, you know, like agree or disagree with some of the takes I have on like maybe why the romance, you know, doesn't really work here or perhaps in the show period. Just, you know, talking about the David Lynch as Gordon Cole scene. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, Bobby, Bobby enters the diner and sees them kissing and, and you hear the sound of a record being ripped from, um, 
from a record player, even though there's a jukebox in there and like the music completely stops. And, and then David Lynch as, as Gordon Cole says, you are witnessing a front three quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. So it, it takes you completely out of the scene and, um, you know, it, it, it's acknowledging this is the director or, well, he's not the director, but here's the creator of the series in sort of director mode, directing the scene, even using director language. Um, so, and, and when I look at, when I look at Shelly in that scene, the way she's kind of enjoying it and snickering, I'm thinking of her as the actor, not as the, not as the character. So that's kind of my take on that. Um, and, and when we first saw Cole, arrive and become attracted to her. And when we first saw Annie arrive and Agent Cooper, you know, is drawn to her. I I didn't buy either of those instances. It felt very forced to me. So I think I'm agreeing with you in, I don't know, with, with Audrey and Agent Cooper, there was more buildup. It felt more realistic and natural. And and some of these just felt kind of dumb to me that all of a sudden, like, oh, okay, I'm completely in love with this person. And now we're on a date and now we're kissing. And I don't know, there just wasn't enough kind of build up for any of these relationships. Well, and I always felt, um, you know, in that scene with uh, Agent Cooper and Annie in particular, you know, they've both got these like pretty heavy pasts. I mean, like leaving aside whether or not we think there's chemistry between the actors or anything like that, if we just kind of accept this is what's happening in the premise of the show, you know, they're both coming from these incredibly like hurt, vulnerable places. I find it a little unbelievable that they're moving as quickly as they are, frankly, considering that both of the characters clearly have like huge trust issues. Um, it, yeah, I... It, it's, it seems like too much too fast to me. And the, the because the actors don't really connect in a way that's super believable, it isn't sold in a way that, that I can buy it. And so, I mean, to your question, do I think um, Twin Peaks fails with romance in general? I'm not sure that I do. I mean, you referred to Big Ed and Norma, who I think have a very believable relationship. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are others as well, but, uh, but in this case, definitely I, I agree. I think it's actually a little, or, or, or I think one way to think about it is maybe as being um, a little more complicated than sort of being strictly realistic. Like I hear what you're saying, Jonathan, for sure. Um and uh, and I agree with uh, the the general consensus here. Also, this episode starts out with a recitation from Wyndham Earl of the sickly sweet world of the White Lodge, and then we have these um, sort of hyper stylized nostalgic snapshots of the characters and the boat on the lake and the, the, you know, the nostalgia of the, uh, you know, innocent fifties at the diner um, about which I will say some more. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there is a, a heightening of uh, the darkness and the, the, the light uh, for uh, effect, um, perhaps more than for straight up, uh, you know, 
representational narrative. Well, good. I'm glad I, or you know, I'm glad we're kind of, I think all three on the same page and, you know, it's not a show that's entirely unsuccessful with romance and those type of relationships, but I think it really doesn't work in this episode. However, one relationship that I think does work and has worked for the run of the series is between Andy and Lucy played by Kimmy Robertson. Uh, before we get into some, you know, some stuff on that, just a bit of background on Kimmy Robertson. Um, she has a dance background, which is going to come into play here in a couple episodes in a really fun way. And, um, you know, when she auditioned, like, like she kind of went through the usual Lynch audition process where they didn't really have her read anything. They just kind of talked and like, you know, her and Mark Frost and I think Lynch all kind of hit it off and talked about philosophy and, you know, they, Hey, now you're on the show, right? Uh, um, if you read <laughs> any interviews with Kimmy Robinson, which I think, which I highly suggest that you do she's extremely candid uh, um and she kind of like pulls no punches she basically says that like in like season two she was really disappointed because like you know lynch left and she even calls like one of the producers an asshole who like didn't get like you know what the stories are like and like went out of their way to like kind of didn't you know she says they like to deliberately sabotage you know some of the characters so like this is an actress who is like kind of working in like you know an unhappy place but you know in this episode like at the end she shows up at the wine tasting and like you know dick is just needling her and andy and they're actually kind of giving it back which is really fun but then you know she brings the reality in this situation she says i'm not drinking because i'm pregnant and it just like takes the piss out of the whole situation which i thought was fantastic um, but, you know, Lucy's kind of done that like the whole series, right? Like, you know, she's been observing, you know, the law enforcement guys on their investigation. She's, you know, she's not just like the ditzy secretary that's sort of sitting behind the glass. Like she really observes and is a key part of really the whole narrative. And I really love how she's almost sort of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Twin Peaks in the sense that, you know, you know, she's there to sort of, you know, be someone who is real, right? I think we've all known you know, someone who is like Lucy, who, you know, that might be kind of like, oh, we think this is like this airheaded secretary, but really it's like, you know, it's almost like the mask she's putting on to, you know, show like, you know, I'm a lot more confident and a lot more like, you know, good at this job, you know, give me credit for it. So she, you know, weaponizes and uses it to her advantage. And, you know, all throughout the, you know, the, you know, the show that's kind of, you know, been her role, right? You kind of, don't think a lot of her until she says something that's amazing or does something that's amazing. And you're like, man, I, you know, really love this character. So what's some of your guys' takes on either Kimmy Robinson or Lucy and, and how do we feel about, you know, you know, kind of how she's weaved into the narrative because at glance, like she is kind of a hard character to take, right. The high pitched voice, the sweaters, you know, what keeps her from being a quirk and something that is indelible. Well, I mean, like you said, she really stands her own and, um, stands her ground and sticks up for herself. And she's really funny in that wine tasting scene where, you know, she basically sees through all the, all the arrogance and all the rudeness. And, you know, Dick, I think is clearly flirting with Lana the whole time. And I mean, what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, you, I guess all of us think Lucy should be with Andy. And so that's the relationship we're rooting for, but Lucy still seems to care about Dick somehow. And, and, and cares when he's flirting with somebody else. Um, so that's a little bit, that's a little bit perplexing, but, you know, generally she, she seems very confident and forthright. Well, and, you know, for a character that I think people do write off as being just kind of the, like, 
silly, ditzy character. She actually has quite a lot of range over the course of the show. I mean, and very believably so. Um, you know, we see her get really angry. Um, we see her get really happy and excited sometimes. And and you know, that's just a that's just a joy to watch because the um, uh, the performance is just is just so so believable and fun. I think you know, Kimmy Robertson is is great. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I I agree that writing her off as as just the the ditzy secretary character it's a it's a really two-dimensional view of a, of a really three-dimensional character i love lucy a lot and so to speak and um i i think the show wouldn't wouldn't be the show without her um and she really isn't just comic relief she really is a a dimension of a character uh in a small town that you you know might encounter and as unusual as she is sort of you know with the yardstick that we might bring to a a, a mainstream network television show in a lot of ways she is a very realistic and believable character i think you're right damon she has she gets to play tremendous range over this role in addition to the highs and lows you mentioned she also um you know she gets a lot of really good looks where she's yearning or uh or she's suspicious or you know there's there's something where she is a real sort of uh weather vane or temperature gauge for for what's going on and in a in the hands of a lesser actor uh that would fall flat or it would be um you know it would be it would be like mugging but um i mean mugging for the camera yeah, but yeah. uh but kimmy robinson being awesome uh totally pulls it off and adds a real important dimension it's also clear too that she is considered a valuable member of the team down at the sheriff's department. Um, you know, you never hear any of the deputies or anybody else speak badly of her. You only hear about like the things that she does that, that they like. And so, you know, even though we might find it silly, like in the pilot episode when she's like, it's on this phone, you know, over by the chair, by the lamp. And it feels like overkill, right. At the same time, you don't get the feeling that anybody there has anything but respect for Lucy as a professional who's doing her job um, and who, you know, can be counted on um, to be kind of the, the eyes and ears of the sheriff's department when, um, when the sheriff and the deputies are out patrolling the town or what have you. You know, it's almost kind of feminist in a way, right? She's just, you know, she's very, very good at her job and she's very, very much her own person, right? Which I think is what makes the character indelible and, and, you know, such a crucial part, because if you didn't have Lucy, you know, you're going to get like too much agent Cooper craziness. So you're going to get, you know, like, you know, Andy with no one to sort of bounce off of, right. It's like, it, it it's a small, but integral role. And yeah, Damon, I think you're right when, you know, for such a, you know, supporting character, she really does get to, you know, play all the emotions. I mean, it's almost as much as like Ray Wyatt gets to do with a much more substantial role. She she does it in little bite-sized chunks. Well, I think it's time to talk about snobbery and elitism on Twin Peaks. There were a few things in this episode that really brought this theme to light. And I think the wine tasting scene in particular really drew that into focus for me. 
um, particularly related to Richard Tremaine in the wine tasting scene and Wyndham Earl. And it's the sense that both of these characters feel better than others. And, and that's been present throughout other episodes of Twin Peaks ever since they both appeared on the show. But it seems even more pronounced this week with Dick's wine tasting class, as he calls it, and Earl's crazy long SAT filled, SAT word filled monologues that were just crazy this week. Um, both both Dick and Wyndham come across as aloof, and they are regularly mocking others as if they exist on a different plane. And for Earl, it's like he fancies himself a poet with this higher level of intelligence and morality. He's been bossing around and torturing Leo, who he treats like an animal. And then his captive this week, heavy metal party dude, who we're going to hear much more about later, um, Wyndham Earl tricks him, uh, you know, tricking him into thinking that he's going to a party and that he's going to give him some beer. And then Earl disparages him, telling him, you've lived your short life in odium and obscurity. Um, so that's Earl. And then Dick Tremaine, this week he he enacts the worst stereotypes about wine experts, and not that he's even an expert. So he has a benefit tasting that he's leading. He's calling it an onophiliac soiree. And he addresses the attendees as his class. He barks orders at them, telling them that there's a right and a wrong way to taste and smell wine, that they're right and wrong answers. And he does this while he's clutching a glass of red wine like a brandy snifter. And, and that's actually something a red wine drinker might not want to do as it's warming up the wine. Um, he tells Lucy that she's wrong for detecting a woody taste in a red wine, even though that's pretty common, especially for wines aged in oak barrels. But then he applauds Lana for tasting banana, attributing it to a chemical compound that he calls metachloric acid that doesn't actually exist in real life. <laughs> so he's just plain snooty and doesn't necessarily even know what he's talking about. Um, the scene is really showing him at his worst. And, and since I know a little bit about wine, I, I was going to share that um, my guess is that they're tasting a Beaujolais and the banana comes from actually comes from a chemical compound called isoamyl acetate, and which is a byproduct of carbonic maceration or from the yeast and regular fermentation. So it is that's, not- That's what I was going to say. <laughs> it's not- yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> if, you, if you Google metachloric acid, you get this episode of Twin Peaks. So it's pretty funny to me. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to hear from all of you if you have- thoughts about other characters throughout the series that you think display elitism or are snobby the way these two are? Well, I think, I mean, the, the person who comes to mind immediately for me is Catherine. Um, she has, she is haughty superiority and uh, you know, what Piper Laurie does with the role is really incredible. I mean, it's as, it's as robust as, any uh, nighttime soap opera of the era, you know, Catherine Martell is really uh, um, quite something. And, you know, it, it is, it's interesting when she and Pete sort of talk about their, uh, you know, their different backgrounds and how, uh, you know, they snuck out together and, but they're from these two different worlds and, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how P 
Pete is kind of the only thing keeping Catherine grounded at all. Um, and, you know, even in this episode, you know, she's definitely in that super haughty mode that uh, is uh, terrifying and horrible, but wonderful to watch. Yeah, she yells, Butterfingers, as he drops the box. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the character that I think displays sort of like the, the sort of elitist attitude, and I forget if they said last episode or the one before where they get down, like I think they bring in Norma and a couple of uh, Dick Tremaine is there. And it might be Doc Hayward or it might be Pete, whoever the three judge. Oh, it's um, the mayor who are going to be the three judges for the um, Miss Twin Peaks. And they all go over like what they think the best quality should be. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, Dick says breeding. Right. And so like Lana is like really like leaning into that sort of thing. Right. She's, you know, she knows exactly how to like cozy up to him. And, you know, we don't really know much about Lana's background aside from that she's, you know, from the South, right? You you get that, like, she's leaning into the whole, like, Southern debutante thing. And, like, it's really, really off-putting. And, you know, it's those two are made for each other, right? You know, Dick and Lana should be, you know, off together somewhere at the end of the series. Uh, who knows what? But I also wanted to mention that the wine tasting sequence in particular made me think of the 2004 um Alexander Payne film Sideways, which stars Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. And like, I always kind of like to look at life as like you're either one of these two guys, right? There's a really famous scene in there where like Paul Giamatti, he like takes Thomas Hayden Church to a wine tasting or a wine something. And he kind of does one of these like Dick Tremaine acts where he's like, oh, you got to like, you know, swish the wine around in the glass and put your nose in it and do whatever, you know, you're supposed to do at a wine tasting. But Thomas Hayden Church is like, when do we drink it? And I'm definitely a when do we drink it kind of a guy, right? And it's nice that we get like Andy, who I think is like, you know, he's also like, when do we drink it? <laughs> you know, and and I'm just like, why would anyone find that fun to like be like hectored by like this guy who like clearly like is just making a, just a, like up a bunch of BS and telling people, oh, you, you know, you have to spit the wine out. Like, I don't know, man. And he's <laughs> like, and he's yelling. He's yelling. Yeah. Not only is he being pompous, but he's yelling at them. It's crazy. Yeah, I've never been to a wine tasting like that at all. And and, and I mean, as the someone who grew up in the Northwest, like I, for whatever reason, we seem to attract like a lot of these like, oh, well, I come from California and I'm the wine expert or oh, I come from this place and I'm the wine expert. So like it felt like really, really like hitting home, kind of seeing some of these scenes. I'm like, man, that is more right than I think they actually knew it was going to be. It's funny that we've spent so much time talking about this um, because uh, as many of our listeners may be aware, um, our own Kyle McLaughlin, Dale Cooper, uh, is now a vintner. Um, he runs Pursued by Bear Wine, um, which I haven't personally tried yet, although what I can say is that the the attitude that they project in their sort of marketing is not snobby at all. They have a bunch of these um, like fun, like... DIY commercials where Kyle McLaughlin's running around being chased by someone in a bear suit. Um, so it, <laughs> it definitely doesn't project a, a, a snobby attitude, but um, it's, it's kind of fun that that's what, uh, what Kyle's up to these days. I will note, not exactly in counterpoint, but the reference pursued by a bear is a reference to Shakespeare play. Uh, and I can't remember which one, but there uh, is a point where everybody on stage has to leave and there's the stage direction, exunt 
pursued by a bear. You know, it's funny you mentioned Shakespeare because Earl, man, that guy is, he's the worst too. All right. Like, look, man, just because you like, you know, can quote Shakespeare and poems and all this sort of stuff, don't make you any special. I got a big old volume of Shakespeare sitting on my shelf and I've read all the dang plays too, but you don't hear me like, you know, quoting off no flowery language and doing all this other stuff. I mean, come on, man, we're in the 21st century at this point. All right. We don't need to be talking like we're in like Elizabethan England, dude. Like you impressed nobody, especially me. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, I wanted to say one more thing about the wine tasting in, in that, you know, the world of wine isn't necessarily like that either. So it's, you know, like I said earlier, it's sort of the worst stereotype, but it's not the reality. You know, there are many people in the wine industry who, who want people to enjoy wine and, and there are no wrong answers and what you taste and what you smell, that's great. It's all subjective. So, um, you know, Dick Tremaine is, is sort of, um, he's like the bad actor, you know, he's the person you would not want leading your wine tasting because he would turn off all your customers and, um, and it's a misrepresentation of the fact that the scene is much more diverse than that kind of old school manner. I I have actually have this old wine tasting record that's sort of in the Dick Tremaine style where it's this man who's invited this couple, you know, to his, house to taste wine and he's he's very much um you know the instructor the old dude like telling them what's right and what's wrong and it's so awful i mean it's hilarious in a way to listen to it now but so awful my dad and i have been making wine for many years and he loves to say um he can always tell if a wine is good or not because it's he he knows it's good if he likes it um (laughs) but uh (laughs) But just to um, to wrap up, because I think I'm the only one who hasn't actually answered your question yet, Jennifer, um, as far as another example of a character who's snobby and elitist, um, I think I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle because I'm going to actually pick a character that I think we like, um, but is unquestionably snobby and elitist. And that's uh, Albert Rosenfield, who, oh, yeah. um, you know, has the most horrible, disparaging things to say <laughs> about the town of Twin Peaks and um, and the people that reside there. Uh, yet at the same time is still, you know, at core, I think a, a good person with a, a generous heart, even if he is, um, you know, a, the picture of, of elitism in a lot of ways. One aspect of this episode that has always stood out to me is the uh, stereotypical heavy metal guy who Jennifer alluded to earlier and who I want to talk about just briefly today. Um, Fun fact about this character, if you weren't already aware, um, he's credited only as heavy metal youth at this stage, um, which sounds like a documentary about the California hair metal scene or something like that. Um, Although we'll soon find out that uh, his name is actually Rusty. Um, And this character is played by Ted Raimi, uh, the brother of none other than director Sam Raimi, who's uh, probably best known for the Evil Dead franchise, but also directed the Spider-Man movie and a bunch of other stuff that you've probably seen before. Um, I don't like this character. This is the last character introduced on Twin Peaks who I don't enjoy watching, I think. (laughs) Um, I don't find Ted very convincing in this role. 
Uh, although, to be totally fair, he's not given a lot to work with. Um, Heavy Metal Youth is written like an after-school special version of a stupid rocker. And honestly, to me, this character feels like a holdover from the Little Nicky era, insofar as um, it's a throwaway character who isn't very likable, but gets way more screen time than necessary anyway. Uh, but what really stands out to me about our heavy metal youth is how dated he feels as a cultural reference. Um, granted, there are uh, still people today, including some people I know, who are really into heavy metal music and might dress sort of like Raimi's character. Um, but what makes this character sort of stand out to me is that this episode came out about a month before Nirvana went into the studio to record Smells Like Teen Spirit, about four months before it was released as a single. So, of course, you know, uh, the writers can't be expected to um, anticipate the sort of massive shift in youth culture that was about to take place at this point. Um, but it's funny to me that this show, which is so rooted in the Pacific Northwest, completely misses the boat here on what youth rock culture was already starting to look like in the area. Uh, in the area. And, um, you know, the sort of fading relevancy of a lot of the 1980s heavy metal that um, heavy metal youth seems to invoke. So to me, without a doubt, if this episode had come out a year or maybe even six months later, heavy metal youth would have probably been grunge youth instead. Um, and the unfortunate Rusty would have uh, appeared on screen in a flannel, probably unbuttoned with a thermal undershirt underneath, uh, ripped blue jeans and a pair of Converse high tops. But instead, he looks like a reject from a Motley Crue music video that, you know, hip kids watching the show at the time even would have been laughing at by the time this episode uh, had aired. So, you know, overall, I think Twin Peaks holds up really well in terms of managing to thread the needle between feeling both uh, very of its time, but also in many ways ahead of its time. Uh, but this is one moment where it definitely feels a little behind. And so my question for the crew is, um, are there other moments we can think of where Twin Peaks has missed the boat on what's actually going on or is about to take off in popular culture. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, if you had a grunge youth in there instead, we're sort of already seeing that throughout the show because grunge youth kind of looks like how a lot of the characters are dressing. Like Bobby is often wearing exactly how you're describing the flannel and the undershirt. Um, and, and also I think of Twin Peaks as existing you know, the show itself is not trying to show contemporary trends. You know, people are dressed more like the early 1960s and it's it's almost jarring. I think it was last week where I mentioned that there was a character who was dressed full on 90s with a sideways baseball cap. And it's like, whoa, like, OK, like we have now now we have an intrusion of the present day. So I, I kind of like that Twin Peaks hasn't jumped on cultural trends. Um, and and I wasn't so much troubled by the heavy metal du um, dude, although or youth, um, although maybe he was coming across more to me as as a surfer dude or a valley guy. You know, the way he talked seemed less heavy metal youth to me. So I don't know. That's a that's a nit. <laughs> 
I think that he that this character uh, has uh, a lot of the issues that you're talking about, Damon. But I I I didn't see him as standing out in the way that you did, uh, in part um, because in my mind, uh, you know, uh, Twin Peaks is is a show of L.A and Hollywood as much as it is a show of the Northwest. Uh, and, you know, even, even though we are set in the Northwest, um, we also have uh, big Western scenescapes and, you know, idyllic callback calls back to 50 romantic fifties movies. Um, and as we sort of uh, suspected, maybe in an early season one episode, there are people from different time periods in Twin Peaks all the time. There's kind of this dislocated uh, sense of time in Twin Peaks. And so anything uh, can happen. Um, the other thing that for me is, was going on. And I think, I think Ramey being here is kind of an in joke, uh, a Hollywood horror film in joke because uh you know ted ramey is famously uh murdered in film after film and show uh -huh. after show that his his brother and their uh producing partners um are are involved in um you know not least of which of course is evil dead uh where uh, ted where ted um is the uh uh plays one of the monsters at various times um so evil dead 1981 evil dead to 1987 would be fresh in everybody's mind and 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 ramey and his brother would be kind of the horror wonderkins of of this moment so they would totally be on somebody like frost and and lynch's radar in that way and uh, as I'm going to suggest later, uh, there's something about um, putting this character in this moment that uh, may be more interesting to Lynch himself and to the Hollywood insiders than to, uh, you know, than to folks who are actually watching the show at the time. So I got a couple of things. One um, you know, because I do think it is like they bring in a character that really has no sort of emotional stakes in the story whatsoever, and they kill him off. Uh, uh, like, what if it was James Hurley, right? Like, you know, he's a totally <laughs> unnecessary character. He could easily die. It would like raise like the you know the emotional stakes of the show. Well, so but he really has to be a pawn, right? And I mean, it has to say next time it will be somebody you know. Right. Um, why not just our, you know Wyndham Earl's been kind of playing the game like he's been stringing him along for you know this long long time he already killed somebody they didn't know you know so so like why not just up the stakes which is I think is a fault of the writing and not performance or whatever but in terms of like what Twin Peaks has missed the vote on and it, 
you know, it's tough because there is sort of what Mark Frost said in the, in the introduction to Secret Diet of Laura Palmer, where he's like, you know, we wanted to make a show that's evergreen. And I think part of the way you do that is by not, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, specifically dating the show. But I think they really missed the boat with like the teen characters. I'm thinking, you know, even as far back as the pilot, when we're in Harriet Hayward's bedroom, like there's no posters on the walls, like nothing about that room looks like a girl lives there, you know? And, and like when we see Laura's room in her house, like nothing about that room suggests a teenage girl lives there. And I mean, I live with girls. I got daughters who are, you know, 12 and eight. And believe me, there is crap all over their walls and like stuffed animals <laughs> and like things that are still evergreen to youth and like teenagers that at Twin Peaks just misses the boat on. And, and, you know, it's funny, we see Shelly in this episode and like one of the few times we see her without like the waitress outfit on. Right. And, and it is kind of like a weird 90s outfit because she's got like that, like lace top. And, and I don't know if it's shorts or like shirt that's sort of like acid washed, you know, but you're like, okay, finally, like this girl is not just a waitress, right. She is, you know, a human being that like, you know, that has clothes and they get like the little scene where it's like Bobby and Shelly and Donna kind of all there at the table. And I'm like, ah, you could have made the Scooby squad with these guys, man. But you know, this is like, you know, the direction the show didn't really go in. So, you know, I think for, you know, Lynch does not and Frost don't really seem to be hip to like what's young and cool. I think they're very much wanting to be kind of stuck in the mode of like what they knew when they grew up with. So it's, you know, it's weird. They don't represent youth culture very well. Not at all. Well, and and this is to me exactly what doesn't work about the Rusty character. I mean, I get what you all are saying about the show trying to be sort of like not of a specific time. And I think that's right. But at the same time, Rusty feels very much to me like what an older guy who lives in LA thinks youth rock culture looks like in 1991. Um, as opposed to like an intentional anachronism, which, you know, we've seen a lot of. Um, and, and so I think that's more, that's where more, more where my critique comes from as far as that goes. Well, I'm going to stake out a somewhat uh, oppositional perspective on this episode, um, at least the way, I read it. I'm a little bit like Damon's dad in this. I know it's good because I liked it. Um, although I will admit when I rewatched it uh, for this uh, second time, I was surprised at how much stuff I had just skipped over in my mind. For me, this episode is a puzzle box filled with puzzle boxes. And as you might suspect, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, uh, I am here for that. Uh, in a big way. Um, So uh, I'm going to kind of lean into some stuff that I've talked about before. Um, uh, I asked permission from my co-host to air this out a little bit. uh, So bear with me uh, and we'll see if what I'm suggesting makes sense. Um, A brief diagnosis first related to what uh, I want to lay out today. We've been talking about this recent period where we felt the show wasn't really being true to itself and true to the characters. So the the little Nikki era, and I think Damon, your point's well taken about Rusty being, uh, uh, you know, a figure from that era. Um, as we get back into the uh, high Twin Peaks style, um, I think we can use a notion that I cobbled together a few weeks ago, namely this idea of gothic absurdism as sort of a key to understand what's going on. Maybe. This is, this is my, my pitch. 
Um, in the little Nikki storyline and those that went with it, we had absurdism, but without any Gothic energy in the Evelyn Marsh storyline and in Josie's as well, perhaps um, we had Gothic structure, but nothing absurd, at least not until that last moment with Josie, which I think to a lot of us felt like, Oh, now we're suddenly back. Um, as we get back to twin peaks, um, we are seeing the, you know, to twin peaks as we know it and love it twin peaks proper. Um, you know, we have said back in the, uh, you know, in the city limits of twin peaks, we're seeing the storylines of Wyndham Earl, the black and white lodges, major Briggs disappearance, all starting to converge. And as they do, the strangeness and the passion of our Gothic absurdism framework is getting reactivated. And I think this is why we feel that we are back in the show we want. Um, so let me take a, a, a brief little side detour to offer as an illustration. I actually have this side theory regarding the Red Room. Um, Gothic absurdism would imply that in our show, we have an element of nostalgia, a period before the curse befell the family, uh, you know, and the people that are, that we're, we're focused on a, a time when things were beautiful and perfect and innocent. Uh, and of course, in Twin Peaks, we have that place which is where we can go for chocolate milkshakes and pie and tunes on the jukebox. And lately, at least sweet, innocent love, um, namely the double R uh, we talk about the other place and we talk about the red room. Uh, it wasn't until recently that I put together the double R and the red room. There is something about the double R that functions not strictly as a place in the real world, but a place in this heightened Gothic absurdism. And there is a power there that makes things weird, <laughs> not unrelated to uh, the Red Room and the other locations that we've talked about over the course of the show as a portal to the other place. So, um, you know, this is certainly, uh, you know, an, an overcooked notion. Um, but it is the kind of thing that Gothic absurdism in the Twin Peaks style might offer us. Um, you know, if Gothic uh, literature is about blood, um, you know, Gothic absurdism might be about milkshakes. Um, so, at the same time that there are things going on, you know, for me, this was like uh, uh, um, potentially a, a clue. Uh, the double R and what we have called the Red Room, uh, that being uh, a link was something that, you know, my, my uh, paranoid mind kind of latched onto. And I think that... Um, we are seeing the symbology of the show ramping up um, and becoming maybe not explicit, but becoming both figurative and literal. Uh, so the symbolism of this, of the show uh, is becoming a puzzle box 
uh, very directly. So for example, in this episode, Earl uh, offers Cooper a giant puzzle box at the end of the episode in the gazebo. Um, but also Harry is still trying to figure out the puzzle box of Josie. Um, you know, he says, you know, I, I, can you help me understand? He asked Catherine, can you help me understand? He just can't, he could never figure out what was going on inside her. And all he could come to is that she was so very beautiful, uh, which is kind of sad. Um, and then of course, in this episode, we have the puzzle box itself and the puzzle box within it, which itself is covered with symbols, phases of the moon, uh, and you know the the, uh, the various symbols around the uh, around around them. Um, this suggests that there is a parallel in the show itself. So when we are shown the moon, which Jennifer, you've talked about many times and pointed out in really interesting ways, um, uh, we are seeing. Uh, symbols about the puzzle within the puzzle. Um, we don't know what the symbols mean. Uh, and like Cooper, we have to rely on intuition and luck and maybe for lack of a better word, magic to find our way through the woods. Um, so we've been enjoying these puzzles. And we said in the last episode, I suggested that Earl is something of a negative space. Um, we see a lot of empty spaces here, most notably Audrey, who both does and does not appear between Jack Wheeler and Cooper when they are sitting at the Great Northern. In that space between them, there are the flames of the fire, uh, suggesting the sense in which love, as, as those characters say, is both uh, a warming hearth and also the fires of hell. Wheeler says he's roped and branded. Cooper says someone is taking a crowbar to his heart. Cooper has had to make himself a puzzle box to survive what happened in Pittsburgh. And both Annie and Earl are trying to find a way in either delicately and tentatively as Annie is, or by breaking him open as uh, Earl is. So we've been enjoying these puzzles Um and the idea of puzzles, um, which are closely related, but not the same thing as mysteries, uh, are, are really integral to the show. I said in, at some point in season one, I referred to Twin Peaks as a puzzle box. And um, we got away from that here in season two after uh, arbitrary law, but I think we've come back. Um, there's a, a fun moment in here where, you know, we know that we're headed into the end of the original run of Twin Peaks. And it feels to me like uh, Lynch speaking through Pete when saying that his puzzle box, uh, Catherine says, you know, how long will it take to, to open it? And Pete says, this could take years. Lynch is sort of saying, you could uh, you could have a, a long running show if you wanted it, but you don't. Um, so I think you know it's pretty clear that Lynch is giving us a puzzle box, and I think that there are two rules uh, that apply to the show itself. Um, in a puzzle box, some things are hidden from you, 
Some things are laid out clearly, but you have to find your way through. Knowledge is elusive and dreamlike. Uh, it's just outside your reach, right? The solution is in there, but you don't know how to get to it. Um, we hear Briggs um, saying he knows things about the petroglyph, which of course is itself a big uh, symbolic puzzle box. Um, uh, he knows things, but from a dream, he doesn't know how he knows them. The other rule is that a puzzle box has levels. There are puzzles within puzzles. And in this episode, we see Earl's cabin. We see the big gazebo um, and we see Josie and so on. And there are others. So I think as this all becomes specific, uh, as we head toward the end of season two, we're seeing characters as chess pieces. We're seeing games within games within games, sort of like the multiple refraction of characters, like the postmen uh, uh, from the episode that Diane Keaton directed, where we saw six identical postmen sitting at a bench, turning their head all at the same time, listening to opera. Uh, these are people who carry messages uh, listening to opera, a high Gothic form, right? So puzzles within puzzles. Um, and I think that this says that there's a metagame about the mysteries of life itself, which is what Lynch is, is showing us, um, showing us the fear that we may never be able to solve the puzzle about life in time. Uh, that we're dealing with something cruel, not something loving and something unknowable instead of something that gives us the comfort of truth. And I think Lynch is very much speaking the mission of the show through Cooper when Cooper says, Harry, there was a time when I could comprehend with a high degree of clarity Wyndham Earl's twisted logic, but his actions of late have left me completely bewildered. He's changing the pattern of the game board. Any hope of deducing his next move has evaporated. There could be plastic explosives in there, chemicals or whatever else hell could imagine. My greatest fear, Wyndham Earl merely condescends to logic, leaving us the task of unraveling an insane man's terrifying caprice. If uh, that's not a mission statement from Lynch to the viewers, uh, I kind of don't know what is. Um, so that's my broad argument. That's where I think, that's what I think Gothic absurdism unlocks. It helps us unlock the show as a puzzle box of puzzle boxes. Um, I don't know what's coming in the next few episodes. That is knowledge outside my reach. But I would ask my co-hosts who are very patient and uh, you listeners who are also very patient uh, what are your favorite puzzles or your favorite clues in the show so far? Well, I was really intrigued that this puzzle box that we see this week has cycles of the moon on it, because as you mentioned, I've been very mystified by the moon on Twin Peaks. <laughs> I, I think that if every episode of Twin Peaks is supposed to be a 24 hour day, which at least from in the first season, that was our impression um, that would mean we're only a month or so into it, but we've seen cycles of the moon repeat in strange ways. So, and we're often seeing a half moon 
but it's sliced diagonally with the top of the moon. Um, now I'm forgetting which direction, but it's sliced diagonally in a way that um, that I rarely see. And so, um, so it was intriguing to see on the puzzle box cycles of the moon, which didn't include this half moon ver diagonal half moon version that we see on Twin Peaks quite often. Um, so it makes me wonder and hopeful that maybe we will find out why the moon seems to be so messed up in Twin Peaks. And is that really driving everything? My favorite puzzle um, is my favorite scene. Uh, and that is Cooper's dream from Xander, the skill to catch a killer. I mean, that whole thing is just a mess of clues there's there's just a mess of clues there, right? And I think this is maybe when we first started talking about the show as a puzzle box, right? Because Cooper says, um, crack the code, solve the crime, right? And, and, you know, I think, Colin, that is sort of a, you know, a manifesto for the project in the same way as you're talking about this, this statement about Wyndham Merrill in this episode. Uh, and it, to me, you know, encapsulates the whole... Um, the whole puzzle of the show, because we've got all this weird imagery and there's strange poetry, which we're also seeing now, right? With this, um, you know, the torn up poem from Wyndham Earl. Um, you know, it's ominous, but often for reasons that aren't really exactly clear why, except that, you know, they just make us feel weird and bad, <laughs> um, which, uh, which I guess you could say is also sort of what, um, you know, what, uh, we're being asked to think about is, is that, is that life, right? <laughs> um, is it, is it something that makes us feel weird and bad and we can't figure out? Um, and, uh, so, you know, that's the scene that for me really encapsulates that and is, um, is just so laden with puzzles and clues. And, you know, I'm the guy whose favorite episode is arbitrary law when literally all the pieces, well, a lot of the pieces of the who killed Laura Palmer mystery are, you know, put together and laid out and we're all kind of seeing how everything came together, which of course Lynch and Frost didn't want to do, but we have this gift and it's part of the narrative of the show. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I was thrilled to see happen. And, you know, when I watch that episode still to this day, like, you know, you get the goosebumps, you get like sort of the anticipation of like, aha, we have an answer. Um, but I do think it's funny that we get the puzzle box that Catherine and Pete have, because I think in many ways, this is a commentary on, um, you know, how people, I don't know how to like present this. We will see different ways in which people attempt to solve this, this puzzle box, this literal puzzle box that has been, you know, given to these characters. You're going to see people solve it in different ways in interesting ways and in maybe unexpected ways. And I'm not going to spoil a whole lot, but you will like, like I think in each twist and turn, you kind of see maybe the creators like pushing back against people's need to get answers or people's sort of desire to, you know, find out what's in there. Cause Catherine is very much motivated by like, I need to find out what is in this thing. Right. And of course, you know, I think it's in this episode, Pete drops it and Hey, we have another layer of the box. Right. So it's, you know, how many layers is this puzzle box going to have? And, you know, what are we eventually going to find in there? And, and, and so, and, you know, Twin Peaks as a whole, like the meta narrative is, 
you know, people watch it and they're like, what in the hell does this show mean? Or what is it about? And they really, really play with this. I think the further we go into the return and, you know, the third season, it's, you know, you, you have this tension of like, I'm going to see some things I don't understand, or it's weird. Or, you know, when you first open a jigsaw puzzle, right, you might have, you know, parts that are in one corner of the puzzle, you know, mixed in with parts that go into another part of the puzzle. And, you know, how do you get them all, you know, worked out and Lynch and Frost, I think have very, very set views on how they feel about that, right? You know, I think they want us to feel comfortable with like maybe things never ever get solved or maybe the pieces never ever come together. And, you know, they want it to be a, a reflection on the viewer, right? Do you feel comfortable with, you know, something that is just going to be lingering out there that'll probably never ever get solved? And I think it's central to this show where, you know, it, you know, we have like a second season that went forever before we got like a third season so i mean it, it like it's no secret to say that there is a lot of unresolved questions or maybe like you know how do i feel about you know something went and for the longest time we didn't have those answers so you know part of i think being a fan of the show is being comfortable with that level of uncertainty okay folks so for the twist this week uh we're gonna maybe do a series of twists that are related to Halloween or horror or spooky stuff as we're headed into October and sort of the, the spooky season, this time of the year, uh, Colin listed a whole bunch of really like great sort of topics to pick from here. And one that sort of really, I think piqued my interest is the scariest monsters ever slash who would scare Bob. And I don't know if I actually went on this podcast and said that I think Bob is, pretty much the scariest monster that's ever been on either TV or film or literature, you name it, Bob is holding that heavyweight championship belt, but I did just say it. And so now there's that. So I guess, you know, we can throw it to, you know, you know, everyone here who are some of the scariest monsters ever. And do you think they'd have a chance at scaring Bob? Well, I was thinking more about rather than the scariest monsters, I was thinking about who would scare Bob and who I would want to scare Bob. And, and Bob has really been, horrible in his murder and rape of women. And so I would want to have a female monster getting Bob um, for some revenge. And so some of the ideas I thought about from mythology are Medusa, um, who's a winged nice. human female with venomous snakes for hair. And if you gaze into the eyes of Medusa, you will turn to stone. And then I also thought about the sirens who uh, we mainly think of as female bird women who lure sailors with their song. So I, there's got to be somebody like a Medusa or a siren who could get Bob. So I'm, I'm rooting for the women or the women animal combos. I love that take. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, with the Cthulhu um, from, uh, you know, Lovecraft mythos. Um, and, I say this, of course, with the usual caveats about how, you know, some of Lovecraft's writing is deeply problematic, but it's still really engaging. And, uh, you know, the reason that I'm going with Cthulhu here is that I think like Bob, he is, uh, he or it, I guess, probably more accurately, is, um, is kind of unknowable and also like Bob, just kind of like contemplating, uh, contemplating the Cthulhu too much kind of makes people crazy, which I think is sort of something that Bob aspires to. Um, but I think ultimately 
uh, the Cthulhu sort of out Bob's Bob because it's it's such a powerful, unknowable entity um, that uh, you know even even just even just thinking about it too much or uh, trying to wrap your head around it uh, drives people to the brink of insanity and beyond. And then you add godlike powers on top of that. Um, I think uh, Bob would be no match for the Cthulhu and, you know, should be, should be afraid. I love that answer. That was where I was sort of initially going. Uh, You know, the only, the only thing bigger than Bob, (laughs) like the only bully big, big enough to bully Bob uh, would be something like that. Uh, So I'll uh, give that a shout out, but uh, Jennifer, I love your answers. I think they're spot on. I think we should keep thinking about that. Um, uh, I, I will sort of answer the first uh, part of the question, which is who are the scariest monsters ever? And I sort of have two answers from my childhood, uh, which are a little unusual. And I'll explain what is going on. The first is glove from the yellow submarine from the Beatles (laughs) animated movie, the yellow submarine glove was the most terrifying thing to me uh, because I could not understand him. I mean, I couldn't understand what he was all about. Um, And he had, you know, this, weird physiognomy and flew around and spoke in that horrifying voice. It was just too much for me. It like short circuited my brain. Um, And I expected like, I love the Beatles and I loved animated movies. And then they put in glove. It was just like, what are you doing to me? The other thing that actually, and it's this, this um, uh, may have been the only monster movie that actually kept me up at night. I actually got up as a kid and went and spent a significant chunk of the night in the bathroom with the lights on, just sitting by the heater, trying to deal with my reactions. Um, uh, And this was the, uh, this was the monster in the hammer horror film, Dr. Sardonicus. Um, and the reason that, uh, he becomes misfigured, uh, is in part the horror of digging up his father's grave to get a lottery ticket, a winning lottery ticket that was buried with the old man. And, uh, he sees the face of, of his father's corpse in this horrible rictus and is then, you know, transformed by it itself. And that whole process of like this corpse, this grinning corpse and his uh, misfigured face, um, those, uh, those, those smiles, those horrifying smiles um, do the same thing to me that glove does sort of the, the like smiling horror uh, is extremely potent. And now that I think about it, and now that I'm rewatching this show, that's absolutely what is going on with Bob. There is something so powerful about smiling horror. And uh, that's part of why David Lynch has totally nailed it, I think. 
You know, we've seen Freddy versus Jason and Aliens versus Predator. And I'll tell you, I will be first in line to see Bob versus Glove if that movie is ever made. <laughs> so I don't know if all of you noticed, but there was a terrifying moment where Bob was invoked in this episode where Pete says, Wowee, Bob, have we got some beauties in the contest this year? Believe me, I noticed. Is, I noticed. You know, is okay. Like, why are you invoking Bob? That is not good at all <laughs> just just i want you to keep that line in your memory as we head toward the uh, finale but i want to say my monsters so um i was scared of dogs as a kid all right and i still kind of don't really like dogs sorry for all the dog lovers out there right the, i'm much more of a cat guy or a goldfish guy all right like uh, uh, uh so um when um like uh, michael jackson he turned into the werewolf in thriller terrified mm. me i also mm. had sort of the same vibes with like the nothing from uh, the never-ending story but in terms of like scariest monsters ever the movies that have scared me the most i mean i'm mexican so we're you know i was baptized catholic so anything with the devil always is like i think really just you know got me at like a gut level right so i don't know if it was like all that old you know catholic teaching or those ceremonies but you know so i kind of think okay so like would like you know the exorcist devil would you know would he beat bob no i think bob still wins my favorite movie of all time is aliens and so then i'm thinking well what about the queen alien versus bob and like that really got me scared because I mean, first of all, is Bob even a human being, right? So, like, you know, could the alien fight Bob? But let's say, like, the alien does fight Bob. And what if the alien impregnates Bob and we have Bob aliens? I I, I don't know, man. All right. Like, oh, my God. That's terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, the aliens have a smile, too. All right. So, uh, oh, um, man. A little smile even... coming out of Bob's smile. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't know if like anything could beat Bob, but I think there's a lot of like terrifying like team ups that could be, you know, quite frightening. Right. Either Devil and Bob or, you know, Queen Alien and Bob. Not really what I think anybody wants to spend their nights thinking about. Well, my gentle fawns, we've concluded another episode of Back to the Double R. And my co-host and I would like to thank you for joining us. We're still a buzz over our recent milestone of 1,000 plus downloads, and that's all because of you. So keep listening. Invite your Twin Peaks loving friends to join in anywhere they get their podcasts. And always feel free to email us at backtothedoublr at gmail.com. There's lots more content at backtothedoublr.com, including show notes, Jonathan's original art, and articles about the show. We're on the socials, so follow us there. Instagram mainly, and we could definitely use more love on Facebook and Twitter if you hang out there. As always, cheers to Pittsburgh Silencio for allowing us to use their beautifully appropriate music for the show every week. Until next time, I'm Jennifer raising a glass of a woody red alongside my fellow Twin Peaks heliacs, Colin, Damon, and Jonathan.